0: Well, this morning we are in our second to last week in our summer sermon series. I know what that means. It means summer is starting to wrap up. You can feel it a little bit this morning, right? Uh, It's been a good series. And next Sunday you're in for a treat. Pastor Antonia, who leads us in our singing on Sunday morning, she'll be doing the teaching next Sunday morning. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity for you to hear from her for the first time. And I'm looking forward to that. And then after that, we're starting a new seven-week series in September and October called I Am. And we're going to look at the seven statements that Jesus said about himself, seven things that he claimed to be true. And we're going to talk about each of those every week and how these seven statements have the power to change the world, have the power to change your world. And so we're looking forward to that series. But this morning, in our second to last week in our series on the life of David, we're going to the very last chapter of Second Samuel, Second Samuel 24. This is the last chapter that's recorded, the last story that's recorded in David's life in 2 Samuel. However, it's, it's out of chronological order. So this happened a little bit earlier, but for whatever reason, the author decides to finish his writing with this story, which causes us to ask, why? Why is this the final story in the writings of First and 2 Samuel? And what we're going to learn this morning is that this is the last story because it has some very important things to say to us. And the author wanted us, when we were done reading his writings, to be left with this story resonating in our minds and in our hearts. And so we're going to lean in together, and I'll just say up front, this text, 2 Samuel chapter 24, was the most difficult text I've studied in preparation for this series. This is a confusing, challenging text. We're going to do a little heavy lifting together. Hope you're ready. Hope you got your energy. We're going to work through some difficult things in this text, but we're going to make sense of it, and we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn about three things. Number one, the sovereignty of God. Number two, the sin of all. And number three, the sacrifice of one. The sovereignty of God, the sin of all, the sacrifice of one. Let's, talk, let's start by talking about the sovereignty of God. In 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, speaking of God, Incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Number, number Israel and Judah, what it means is take a census. Verse 2 So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number. Of the people. story starts kind of innocently enough, right? David wants to take a census, and that was a normal thing to do. Nothing inherently wrong with a king taking a census of his people. But we're going to learn that this was a sin against God and against the people. There's something really kind of confusing right at the beginning of this story. It makes it seem like God leads David into this sin. But we know from elsewhere in Scripture, specifically from the book of James, that God does not tempt us to sin. He does not lead us to sin. He is not the author of sin. But what's even more confusing about what we just read is that there is a parallel account of the exact same event in the book of Chronicles. And in the book of Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it doesn't say that God incited David to take the census. It says that Satan incited David to take the census. Those are two pretty different perspectives, right? So who's right, Samuel or the author of chronicles? And the answer is both. And in order for us to understand this, we have to understand the sovereignty of God. And I want to give you a definition for the sovereignty of God, just a functional definition that will help us move forward together this morning. This is not the most theological, robust definition you will ever read about the sovereignty of God, but this will help us. The sovereignty of God is God's supreme. Supreme means above all others. His supreme authority, he has the right and ability, he can do it, right? So it's his supreme authority and ability to use everything for our good and his glory. The sovereignty of God means that because of who he is, he can take anything in your life, anything that's done to you, anything that you've done to others, and he can work it into his plan and his purposes to accomplish something for your good and for his glory. And he's the only one who can do this. This is unique to our God he's sovereign. So, how does this help us understand the apparent contradiction between Samuel and Chronicles? Here's what I think is happening. The person who wrote Chronicles, he is zooming in on David's heart and David's mind and David's decision, and he sees the work of the enemy Satan influencing David to do something that he shouldn't have done. But the author of Samuel, what we read, instead of zooming in, he's zooming out. And he's seeing the big picture. And he's seeing the sovereignty of God. That God is so sovereign, he's so powerful, he's so redemptive, he's so able that he can use even the work of the enemy to accomplish his purposes. That's how big and how great our God is. And we see this in the story of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph's brothers sold him off so that he would die and be out of their lives. But later on, they came back to Joseph. And Joseph was in a position of power where he could help them. And Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50:20, 20, what you intended for evil, God turned around and did it for good. God can take the evilness that has, the evil that has been done to you, God can take the evil that you have done, and he can turn it around for his purposes and his plans. Here's one way of thinking about it. God can use crooked pencils to draw straight lines. This is the sovereignty of God. The Lord is able to use good and evil human acts for his purposes, and he does so, listen, he does so without in any way eliminating eliminating or limiting human responsibility for the deeds themselves. So what that means is this, the Lord had his purpose in what he incited David to do without compromising David's responsibility for what he did. We'll see later that David takes full responsibility for what happened. For the outcome of his sin. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't say, God, you made me do this. David says, I've sinned against you. So God is sovereign in a way that doesn't diminish our human responsibility, but our human responsibility in no way diminishes the sovereignty of God, his ability to take the mess of our lives and do something with it. So, what does this mean for you and me? Two very important things. Number one, the first thing it means is what we do matters, we have choices we have free will. We make decisions. And how many of you have learned in life that there are consequences to your decision? That's the word we like to use in our house when we're disciplining our children. We don't say punishment, we say consequence. (laughs) Because we want to see the connection between what they did and what we're doing. Now, my six-year-old, they started talking to me about consequences in my own life. And when she's not happy with what I'm doing, she likes to give me consequences. And her favorite one right now is to say to me, Daddy, you go to jail for 15 minutes. That's what she says to me. You go to jail for 15 minutes. I don't know where she got that from. I got to check out what she's been watching on Netflix. I don't know why she's thinking about me going to jail. But this is, this is life, right? Consequences for what we do. And what we do matters. It has consequences in our lives. And how many of you have learned the hard way that what you do has consequences in other people's lives as well? So in no way are we puppets and God is a puppet master and at the end of our lives we'll say, I wasn't really me. It was God making me do those things. Or we have human responsibility. His sovereignty does not diminish our responsibility. But here's the second thing. It means that what God is doing matters more. What we do matters. But what God is doing we got this next slide here, or what God has done matters even more, more. And what this means is that there's nothing you've done up until this point in your life, there's nothing you'll do this week that God can't still use to accomplish his ultimate purposes and plans. His hands are not tied by our insecurities, our inabilities, our mess-ups, our mistakes, our flaws, even our sins, and the work of the enemy. The author of Samuel wants us to know God was in charge of this whole thing. Yes, Satan was at work in David's heart, but God was always using these things to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And by the way, what this means is that even your worst moments won't be wasted. Even your worst moments won't be wasted. And instead of fighting against God's sovereignty and wrestling with God's sovereignty, we're invited to rest in his sovereignty. That he's faithfully at work taking the messes that we offer to him, including our lives, and doing something beautiful with it. At the end of time, we'll look back and we'll see how God took every little thing about us and used it to weave together the tapestry of his mercy and kindness and grace in our lives. So Christian this morning, be encouraged. God is at work in his sovereign ways. The second thing that we learn in this story is we don't just learn about the sovereignty of God, but we learn about the sin of all. So let's keep reading In verse 3, Joab... Uh, says back to David, somehow Joab knows this isn't a good idea. And so here's what he says to him in verse 3. May the Lord add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? He's saying, why is this such a big deal to you, David? Joab's trying to talk David out of it. But David's the king, he's got the power, and he says, no, go and take the census. And so Joab and his men, they go and they travel all over Israel. It takes them nearly ten months to complete this census. And they come back, and, and according to this passage, they say there's 1.3 million men who are ready to fight. And In the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's hard to get exact numbers because they counted a little differently than we do, and the word thousands in the Hebrews can also be translated clans or tribes. So we don't always know the exact number, but David knew, and he was told, here's how many men you have. And in that moment, somehow, David immediately knows that he's sinned. And look at what he says in verse 10. Or look what it says. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David immediately realizes he has sinned. Now, why is David's census a sin, a great sin? The text doesn't tell us exactly, but we can have some thoughts and some ideas on it. Uh, many times when kings and rulers would want a count of their people and specifically a count of their military, it was because they were prideful. They wanted to hear how great their kingdom was, how large their kingdom had grown, I remember when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards. I was like, I loved baseball cards. My favorite player was a guy named Ricky Henderson who played for the Yankees and the Athletics and the Blue Jays and maybe some other teams. But I I wanted all the Ricky Henderson cards I could find. And I got up to over 300 Ricky Henderson cards. I still got them at my house if you want to see them. Ricky Henderson cards, 300 plus of them. And I remember I would sit down uh, in my room and I would count through all my cards. Even if I knew how many were there, I still would count through them because I loved knowing so I could tell other people, maybe you don't count cards, but maybe you count Instagram followers, or maybe you count your bank account, or maybe you count how many kills you get in a video game. Whatever it is, we're all counting different things, and when you count something, very often it's to feed your pride, and maybe that's what David's doing here. He wants to know because he wants to feel good about himself. It's also possible that this is a lack of trust in the Lord, that David, the shepherd boy who defeated the giant, forgot that Israel's strength was not in their numbers, but Israel's strength was in their God. And by counting the number of military men, maybe David was trying to build up his confidence and putting his trust in how big their army had grown. It's also possible that David was ambitious to conquer more people that God didn't want them to fight, and he was trying to get his army ready. It's also possible that David was taking a census in order to tax his people more, in order to gain. We don't know the exact reason, but we know what the real heart issue was, because in verse 3, Joab says to David, why does your heart, why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? And this is the word, delight, that sort of unlocks this whole passage. Because whatever you delight in is the thing or the person who most captures your heart, your imagination, your energy, your efforts, your affection, your attention, and whoever or whatever you delight in most will determine the way that you live and lead your life. I used to travel a lot in my previous role with the Assemblies of God, and I'm an adjunct professor at a university just outside of Philadelphia. And so I would go down there sometimes to teach classes or to speak in chapel. But whenever I got there, it was about 45 minutes from Philly, I always had a plan. I got to get into Philly to get a cheesesteak. Like, that's what I was focused on. Like, my heart so delighted. Now, specifically, I go to Tony Luke's, and I actually don't get the cheesesteak. I get their roast pork Extra Sharp Provolone and Broccoli Rob Sandwich. And it is killer. And so anytime I was near Philly, because my heart so delights in this sandwich, I would literally arrange my meetings and my classes in my day so that I could drive the 45 minutes into Philadelphia just to get this sandwich. Listen, when we delight in something, we'll do whatever it takes to get it, to have it, whether it's a food item, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a person, a relationship, an accomplishment. And we don't know why exactly, but for whatever reason, David's heart delighted in taking this census in such a way that he was delighting in this more than he was delighting in the Lord. And one of the simplest definitions of sin is that sin is when you delight in something more than Jesus. When your heart finds its deepest joy and satisfaction in something other than Jesus and always has a way of separating us from God. And so David sins here. And it's not just a problem for David, it's a problem for me. And it's probably a problem for you. It's a problem for all of us. And what we see next in this story is that God does not leave us to our delights, but he confronts our delights to show how worthless and painful they are. And what happens next in the story is a prophet named Gad comes to David and says, David, you have sinned. And David recognizes, I have sinned against God. And he says to David, you have three choices of consequences. It's very unusual. This is not how God normally works, but he does in this story. He says, here are your three choices. You get three years of famine for Israel. Three years of famine, which is bad for an agriculturally driven society. Or for three months, you're going to be on the run for your life from your enemies. Now, David had spent much of his earlier life on the run from his enemy. So he knew what this would entail. And he's older now. Or you can have three days of pestilence, of sickness, basically an outbreak of some sorts. David doesn't actually choose. All he says is, I don't want the second one. And the reason why, he's, he's already done it. He's older. And what he says is, I don't want to fall into the hands of my enemies, of humans, because they're not merciful. But put me in the hands of God, because there's mercy found in God. And so God sends three days of pestilence, and 70,000 Israelites die in those three days. At least that's, what we, that's how we interpret that number from this text. Now, I get it. That seems harsh, right? That seems unfair in some ways. Why should all of Israel suffer for David's sin? But we might you might have missed this earlier. Let's go all the way back to verse 1. How did this story start? It says this. It says that the, go to the next one. I think we're off. All right. So let me just read it to you. Verse 1, it says again, do we have it up here? Boom. All right. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So this means that the story began with God already having some sort of an issue with Israel. So Israel's not suffering just because of David's sin, Israel is suffering because of their sin. Against God. David's sin is in a way a representative of the sin of the nation. So God is not just punishing Israel because of David. The story begins and God already has, we don't know what happened. We don't know the exact reason, but this is not about the sin of one. This is about the sin of all. David, the king, as the representative of the people, he has an individual sin in this story, but it represents the collective sin of the people and God responds with punishment and with wrath. I want to pause and address the issue of God's wrath And I recognize that this is a challenging uh, characteristic of God for many. Especially if you grew up in a home that was filled with wrath and anger or around people. The idea of God having righteous anger or wrath can be very difficult and destabilizing. And I'm sensitive to that. I do want to help you understand how God's wrath is different than maybe the wrath you experience from other people. And, there's, and this will be quick, but there's five ways, and you, some of you really, this will help you hopefully this morning. Five things that's true about God's wrath. Number one, God's wrath doesn't contradict his love. It actually is a display of it. Now I want you to think about this for a second. If, if, if you're a parent and you see a child being attacked in public, no matter what, what happens as a parent, or just as a decent human being, you start to feel, you maybe wouldn't call it wrath, but that really is what it is. It's anger. Now, imagine that that kid is your kid. What happens to the wrath? Does it go down? It ratchets up. Why? Because you aren't loving? No. Because of your love. The greater your love for someone, the greater your wrath when that person is being threatened, hurt, attacked, or hurting themselves in some way. And that wrath can have lots of different expressions. But I want you to see that they're not contradictory. They actually complement each other. And so if God is a God of infinite love towards his people, then God also has to be, by nature, a God of infinite wrath towards the sin that destroys the people that he loves so much, okay? So God's wrath does not contradict his love, it complements it. Secondly, God's wrath is always just. Yours and mine is not. Anybody ever lose their temper for the wrong reason? Anyone ever get angry over something they shouldn't have? Just a couple of us? God never loses his temper. He never gets angry for the wrong reason. God's wrath is always just. Third, God's wrath is never quick. We know that from Exodus 34, 6. He is slow to anger. Come on, that's good news for you and me. God is slow to anger. He delights to show his love, not his wrath. Number four, God's wrath is always for our greater good. It's like the pain of surgery and therapy that's intended to give you a greater future and greater health. It's like the pain of exercise, right, that is supposed to allow you to live a healthy life, the pain of a hard conversation for the good of somebody. It's always for our greater good. God's wrath and justice and judgment is an act of mercy because it's saving us from a greater future pain. The pain of God's wrath poured out on our sinful lives now, uh, or then I should say, was saving them from a greater future pain. And then lastly, even in his wrath, God shows his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we're going to see at the end of this message that God's wrath is not for those who trust in him, but there's now mercy found in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God. The result of sin is that there's pain Pain in our lives, pain in the lives around us, but thankfully the story doesn't end here. My last point this morning, the sovereignty of God, the sin of all, and now we see the sacrifice of one. The prophet Gad comes back to David and says, David, go build an altar. Now this is in the middle of this pestilence. 70,000 people are dying and David's, what do I do? And Gad says, go build an altar an altar and make a sacrifice and David finds a place on a it's called a threshing floor which means it would have been an elevated area on top of a mountain and David wants to make the sacrifice there because it's right by Jerusalem he's trying to protect Jerusalem he wants to make the sacrifice there but David doesn't technically own the land and so David finds the man who owns the land and the man says what are you doing David King he says I need to offer a sacrifice here and the man says to David it's yours take it You're the king. It's all yours for free. And look at what David says. This is our key verse this morning, verse 24. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor. And the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Verse 24 says, David says, I will not offer to the Lord, my God, something that costs me nothing. This is the verse that's been haunting me all week as I've been studying this passage. Because I've thought to myself, what about me? What am I offering to the Lord? And what is it costing me? There's a big difference between costless religion and costly discipleship. There's a big difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. There's a big difference to laying down our lives, taking up our cross, and following Jesus and just sort of saying, I'm cool with Jesus. And he's good for me. My concern is that in modern religion and modern Christianity, we've reduced the discipleship of the work of following Jesus to just maybe um, showing up once a week, posting a verse on social media, saying prayer before we eat, chasing a feeling, having certain moral convictions. That's all fine, but what does it actually cost us to follow Jesus? Here's how scripture talks about following Jesus take up your cross. And follow me. Lay down your life. Deny yourself. The last will be first. Pray for your enemies. Don't post about them. Don't get angry at them. Pray for them. Be a servant of all. Love your neighbor. Consider others before yourself. Be generous. I must decrease so Christ can increase. This is the cost of following Jesus. And I think every follower of Jesus at some point has to come to grips with the same thing that David said. I will not offer to the Lord something that doesn't cost me. So what is it? I'm not talking about making life unnecessarily hard for yourself on purpose. I'm not talking about beating yourself up so that God will love you or accept you. I'm talking about taking full responsibility for the way in which we live our lives and ask ourselves, which dream am I actually chasing after? Because you can't chase after two dreams at the same time. You can't have the dream of being a follower of Jesus Christ and offering costly sacrifices to him and chase the American dream at the same time of having stuff and more stuff and more stuff. You can't chase the dream of power and influence over people and chase the dream of being a servant of all. You can't do it at the same time. Your heart is not wired to serve two masters at the same time. And so the question is, is there anything that you delight in? Is there anything you dream about that's actually getting more sacrifice from you? Than Jesus is. And this is what this story confronts us with, that we will not offer the Lord something that doesn't cost us nothing. Now, let me close with this. Where do you and I find the motivation to do that? Where do we find the strength to offer to Jesus our everything? And to answer that question, I want to bring us all the way back to the first question in the message this morning, which was this. Why is this the last story in 2 Samuel? Out of all the stories that David's life could have been concluded with, why is this the one? And I think the author wants us to do two things. The author wants us to look back, and the author wants us to look forward. Back then, the last portion of any writing was supposed to serve as like a summary for everything else. And actually, in Second Samuel 24, that's kind of what we have. We have David's story in a nutshell We see David in three different lights. Number one, David is the king. He's been chosen by God. He's been elevated to a position of leadership. Number two, David is a man. He's sinful. He's broken. He's flawed. He's the king, but he's also still a sinner. But number three, David is a man after God's own heart. He hears the truth from Gad. He receives it. He responds to the rebuke. He repents. And listen to what David did in the middle of the story. I might have forgotten to read it. But David says to God, God, why should Israel suffer these sheep? Put that punishment on me. Here's what David's offering. I'll die for them. But he can't. And the reason he can't is because he's guilty too. He's not innocent. He can't take the place of those who are guilty like Israel. He has to suffer also. So the story ends, and we're looking back at David's life, and we see that David was a representative for the nation, and that David, who sinned really as a representative of Israel, he was also able to offer a sacrifice as a representative for Israel. And he offers that sacrifice on that threshing floor, and the angel that's bringing destruction stops destroying, and God's mercy kicks in, and before the three days are up, the punishment, the consequence ends. And it's a great story. David's sacrifice prevents destruction. For more people. But that's only good for them. That's not good. What does that do for me? What does David's sacrifice, how does David's sacrifice get me off the hook? What does David's sacrifice do about Israel's sin next time? What does David's sacrifice do about your sin? What does David's sacrifice do about my sin? Nothing. And everyone who reads this finishes the book of Samuel and goes, that's wonderful, but who's going to make a sacrifice for my sin? And then the story ends. And we're left with that tension. And that's why the book ends there. Because it also wants us to look forward. See, the threshing floor that David bought was on a mountain called Moriah, which is the location where many years previously a man named Abraham had taken his son Isaac up a hill and offered him to the Lord. The Lord showed mercy and sent a ram's blood to be shed instead of Isaac's. In this same area, this same place, This would become the very location of the temple. Solomon's temple would be built right here on this threshing floor, the place where the people of Israel would come and make sacrifices to be made right with God time and time again. But they had to keep making sacrifices because they kept sinning, and what they needed was a sacrifice once and for all. 1,000 years after this story happened, Jesus walks into this same rebuilt temple and says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in 3 days. And and everybody says you're crazy, Jesus. It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in 3 days. And what they didn't understand was that Jesus was not talking about the building, he was talking about his body. And here's what Jesus was saying. I'm the better sacrifice. I'm the true and better sacrifice that everyone needs. I'm the true and better temple. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way to be made right with God. God chose David in this story as a representative for the people to make a sacrifice. But 1,000 years later, God sent his son Jesus as a representative for all humankind, not just to make the sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. And the cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy of God and the wrath of God collide together. And Jesus took the wrath and the judgment and the justice that you and I deserve because of the sin in our lives and in our hearts, and we walk away from the cross with the mercy of God. Knowing that a sacrifice has been offered once and for all. And here's what it means. The costly sacrifice that we make to serve Jesus always finds its motivation in the costly sacrifice that Jesus made to save us. Look at what it costs you to serve Jesus. It's really so small compared to what Jesus did to save us. And the book ends this way so that no one is ever going to make the mistake of putting their ultimate hope in david david's great i'm glad we've studied his life i'm glad we have one more week to do so but he didn't save us he was not our great hope he pointed to our great hope think about it david was a shepherd boy yeah but jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for a sheep jesus david was handsome he was a good-looking kid but jesus is the beautiful one david was a giant slayer but jesus is the real rescuer He's the true hero who defeated the real giants of sin, death, Satan, and hell. David was unfairly treated, but Jesus is the only truly innocent sufferer. David was victorious in battle many times, but Jesus is victorious forever. David made this sacrifice, but Jesus became the sacrifice. Yes, David was God's king, but Jesus was not just God's king. Jesus was the God king. God as king. And he went to the cross to sacrifice for you and for me so that you and I could say someday, just like David did, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Let's pray together.